Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your creation and for making us. Help us to make sense of what's going on in our lives. Would you use your teaching now from Genesis 1 and 2 to speak to us and how we are to be in our homes, in our marriages, as fathers, as mothers, as those who are single, as those with homes, as those without homes. God, be with us. Teach us. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. So in Genesis 1 and 2, and basically the first two chapters, it's teaching us that God created a good and a perfect world. It opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right away, this writer of Genesis, his name's Moses. He's saying that in the beginning, God created everything. And he's saying this to a world around him who believes there's millions and millions of different gods. There's gods of the sky, of the birds, of the potatoes, of the land, of hunting, of sex and love. There's all sorts of different gods. But Moses right away saying, no, in the beginning was God. He created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. He created the beginning. He created time and space. He created you and me. He created the heavens and the earth, the animals, the plants, the mountains, oceans, everything. And as we continue through Genesis 1, verses 2 to 24, he's describing how God created this very good world. So in verse 2, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. Then he separated the light from darkness and called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters and the heavens from the earth. And that is what happened. God made the space to separate the waters and the earth from the waters of the heavens. God, God called the space sky. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. As we read the first three days, God is forming something out of nothing. God is unique in that God has always existed. No one created God. That's what my daughter asked me. Who made God? I said, God always was. And she says, I don't get that. I was like, I don't get that either. But that's true. I don't know how else to explain this to you, little three-year-old. Four. She's four. Where did God come from? God always was. Nobody created God. He always was. So, so for the first three, three days, God is forming the world. We continue in verse 9. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place. So God dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. So God speaks something. He says, let there be light. And poof, there was light. Let there be dry ground. And that is what happened. Verse 10, God called the dry ground land and the water seas and God saw that it was good. Every time he makes something, it's good. Because God is good. And whatever he makes is very good. It's good. Continuing verse 11, Then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees, and all these vegetables grow. All these 
trees, beautiful. And God saw that it was good, and evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. God is creating all this. He's creating all this beauty out of nothing. He's made the light and the darkness. He made the sky and the clouds and the vegetation and the ground. He saw it was good. It was good. But why did he do this? Why did God create anything in the first place? A huge, huge question that needs to be answered is why is there something rather than nothing? Why do you exist? Why does anything exist? Why? So Genesis is in the Old Testament. If we go to this book called Colossians, written by a man named Paul, these inspired words answer this question. Why did God create the night and the light and the sky and the waters and the vegetation? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. Paul says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. Paul is saying, that Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God the Father and the Holy Spirit as it hovered over the seas. This, what we know as the Trinity, we don't have three different gods. We have one God in three persons, Holy Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are one God. And Paul is saying Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. Why does anything exist? For Jesus, that all the world would know and adore and treasure Jesus. The world was made through him. The world was made by him. Jesus is the creator of the whole world. He is the sustainer of the whole world, being that, meaning that everything that is not God relies on God to exist. Everything that is not God relies on God to exist. Jesus sustains the world. Jesus is the goal of the universe. Jesus is God. In a world today where we say he's just a great teacher, he's just a good moral leader, right away the Bible opens up and says, he is God. Jesus is God. There is no other God. Jesus created everything he created you he sustains everything and he is the goal of the universe that our affections that our allegiance that our thoughts and energies are to go to worshiping jesus that is the goal so days one two and three god forms something out of nothing in days four, five, and six in the creation story, he fills those spaces. So you'll notice here that we have darkness and light and space, and now God fills that. First he formed it, 
Then he fills it with planets and universes and skies. And here we have the sea and the sky, and then he fills it with birds and fish. And here we have vegetation, and we have it filled with animals and creeping things and people. So here, days one, two, and three, we have forming. And days four, five, and six, we have filling. So God forms the world, and then he fills it. And this is what we get from, chap- from verses 14 to 25. God filling this good earth and saying it was good. It was good. God alone is the creator. And he's a masterful worker. He's brilliant beyond comprehension. He did all this and did not break a sweat. He alone is the creator. Did you know that the earth is tilted at a certain angle? Do you know what degree that is? 22. 22, we got anything else? 22. It's 23. I measured it today. Just got my compass. And, oh, yeah, it's 23. So the earth is tilted at a 23-degree angle. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Not really, unless you think about it this way. If the world was not tilted exactly at 23 degrees, we would lose our seasons. The reason we have seasons is because the world is tilted like that. If we lost that angle at all, we would lose our seasons and all of life itself. Because the vapors from the oceans would go up to the North Pole and Antarctica and start building ice, and we would be doomed. And our moon is at a certain distance. Does anyone know that distance? I'm not expecting anyone to know that. But I measured it today. Just look in. One, two. The moon is at a certain distance from us. If it was any closer, any closer... Tidal waves would destroy the continents. We live in a masterpiece. The world that God created is perfect. So this is his creation. And then verses 26 to 31, God is telling a story of how he created humans. He created you and me. And humans are unlike animals or nature. We read in verse 26, Then God said, Let us, make human beings in our image. So just pause there for a second. Let us, who's saying that? Who's us? So other Christian scholars say, oh, God is talking to angels. Us, we're going to make, we're going to make people in our image. Nowhere in the Bible, elsewhere in the Bible, to say angels create anything. Angels are created. When God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us, God is having this mysterious and beautiful dialogue with the Holy Spirit and Jesus saying, Dear Trinity, let's make people in our image, people that would reflect our creativity, our goodness. Moses continues in verse 26, They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. 
In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Scurry is a funny word. Just picture this little mouse like scurrying. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. So God's saying, let's do this. And then it happens, it says. And that is what happened. Verse 31. Then God looked over all that he has made. And he saw that it was very good. Very good. Not only good. It was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. So Moses is hammering in. God alone created the heavens and the earth, and God created you. And God alone defines what is good and evil. He said it was good in verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, 21, 25, when he's creating things. This is good. This is good. This is good. Now this is very good. God defines our morals because God is our absolute moral standard. He is our point of reference. Anything that's good, it's good because it reflects God's character. Anything that's bad, evil, is because it does not reflect God's character. And if there is no God, if there is no God, then humans become the point of reference. We decide what is right and what is wrong. And already in this room, we'll have disagreements about morality. How are we to agree what is right and what is wrong? What is our standard? Whoever is the loudest, whoever has the biggest gun, Whoever has the most money, whoever has the best hair, who's going to decide? That, ultimately, if you think about it, is complete chaos and madness. If we are the point of reference, everything is up for grabs. Everything. If God is not real. And there's a famous German philosopher. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know if you read Nietzsche. But he's the one who coined the phrase and made famous, God is dead. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said, God is dead. And his writings were read by Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin. We're talking millions upon millions killed at the hands of these three men who read Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was not a Christian. But he knew the outcome if there was no God if God is truly dead and we have no point of reference we have no moral compass we have no way of determining what's right and wrong he says Frederick Nietzsche said if there's no God if God is dead is there any up or down left we can't tell what's right and what's wrong what's up or down and he predicted that the 19th and the 20th and 21st century would be the most, would be the bloodiest centuries with this mindset. And that is what happened. Another English philosopher, his name is G.K. Chesterton, 
He said the tragedy of disbelieving in God is not that a person ends up believing nothing. Alas! That's a great word that we need to bring back. Alas! Say that to Caitlin. Alas! I am hungry. She'll say, alas, get your own food. So G.K. Chester says, the tragedy of disbelieving in God is not that a person ends up believing in nothing. Alas, it is much worse. A person may end up believing in anything. So we have the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, and the Stalins who are thinking we are doing the world a favor by killing those who are different than us. They thought that was right. They thought they were doing good. No, he says it's much worse, Chesterton. A person may end up believing in anything. And so God is setting these standards right off the bat. Right when you read the Bibles, God is setting the standard. Creation is good, people. Creation is good. And then he created people. How did he create them? By breathing life into them. He didn't breathe life into animals or into the vegetation. He created humans in their image. Male and female, he created them. Verse 27 in Genesis. Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them. Male and female. Today. If you don't have Facebook, I'm not saying sign up for it, but there are 58 sexual orientations on Facebook today. If you're to sign up right now, there are 58. Who knows all 58 of those? I'll just name a few. There's agender, so not like a gender, like one word, agender, so neither. There's gender fluidity. So you're kind of in between genders, between 58 different genders. You have pangender, which encompasses the entirety of the gender spectrum. If you're pangender, you're just everywhere. You have two-spirit. So this is like a third gender, even though there's 58. There's like male, female, and then there's a third gender. It's found in some Native American cultures where people have taken the identities of those of the opposite gender. There's 58, but there's going to be more. How are, you, how are we supposed to think about this? As a people, as my kids are growing up, and my daughter's hearing, it's okay. You can be whatever gender you want when you grow up. What am I supposed to say to her? Daddy says no? That's not enough. God says male and female, he created them. Obviously, this is highly offensive today to say that no, there are no agender, pangender, gender fluid, two-spirit people. There's male. God made you male or God made you female. Male or female. Everything else is a distortion that we have created. Do you hear that? That's not just child's play. Kids can change their genders whenever they want. Is this a problem? Is the Bible archaic and we sh this is just old writing? Like, why are you reading this, Harrison? Moses is dead. God is dead, said Nietzsche. Again, if God does not exist, we have no moral compass and anything goes. 
And the ultimate question around anything moral, but around gender identity is, who gets the final say about gender? Who gets the final say? Is it the government? Is it your mom and dad? Is it you? Who gets to decide? Moses is saying, the Bible is saying, God. God created the heavens and the earth. God dictates what is right and wrong. And then we align ourselves with that even if we don't like it. That's a tough sell. That's a tough sell. But why does God do this? Why would God demand such a, such a narrow view? Because it brings Him praise and glory and is designed for human flourishing. It's not just arbitrary. God just doesn't do things. He's doing things because it was good. He said it was good. He said it was very good. And if we distort that, it is not good anymore. We call it sin. We call it evil. If you have more thoughts and want to consider this question around gender identity specifically, I'd recommend reading or YouTubing a man named Ravi Zacharias. First name Ravi, R-A-V-I, second name Zacharias, Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-S. He will help you think about and how to respond to your friends, your family, your coworkers about these very legitimate and honest questions that people have about the Christian worldview. So that's chapter one. God created a very good world. Chapter two. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. So for six days, he created things. The vegetation, light, planets, humans. Then he rested. Verse three. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. Holy meaning set apart, separate, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. God rested. Not because he was tired, because he chose to. And we are to rest in God. We are to rest in God. We are to find our identity in God. We are to find our meaning in God. We are to find our strength, our joy, our hope, our trust in God. We are to rest in God. And God rested. There's a man, a great writer, a great mind. He's dead now. St. Augustine. We will see him in heaven. St. Augustine said this, Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. He said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Maybe you've come here today and you don't know God. And your heart is restless. You're just yearning, you're striving, you're looking for something to fill this void in your life. I remember feeling that way in university. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but my heart, my starving heart was hungry for a meal. I would try to feed it with garbage, with sex, and money, and drugs, and fame, and education, and all these things, thinking it would fill this hole. But it was just like throwing grass into a black hole. It wasn't satisfying. 
wasn't until 2009 I encountered Jesus through reading the Bible and he took out my heart of stone and gave me a new heart and I could rest in him I don't have to go searching around the world looking for this thing this holy grail Jesus says I'm right here I'm right here for all of you rest in me our hearts are restless until they find the rest in thee. St. Augustine, he knew from experience that a life, a life apart from Christ is just striving. It will never end. That men and women will remain restless regardless of what they attain in this world. You want to be a millionaire? Did you know that you can be a billionaire? You want to be a billionaire? You know you can be a trillionaire? It never ends. You will never find your rest until you put your hope, your life, and your trust in Jesus alone. Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the goal of the universe. Jesus, he says, in a book called Matthew, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Go to Jesus. If you're hearing me now, go to Jesus. Rest in Him, not in your own strength. Our sins, our evil, all of our sins, who have wronged a perfect, holy God. God is holy because He is separate. He is good. We have wronged Him. And Jesus forgives us. No longer do we have to work to be in right relationship with God like in the beginning. Jesus said, I paid for that. I dealt with your sin and you can rest in me and what I've done. The good news, the gospel of Jesus is not what you can do for God but what God has already done for you in Jesus. In this book called Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For only we who believe can enter his rest. Until then, you are restless until we find a rest in God. Chapter 2 explains how he created man and how we were meant to be in this perfect relationship with him. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed life into the man, into the nostrils, and the man became a living person. We are immortal. Humans have immense capacities that animals don't have. We have responsibilities. We have great responsibility for glorious and magnificent things, but we are also capable of massive disaster. We can ruin lives. Some have ruined ours. But God says, I can restore all things. I created out of chaos something beautiful. I can create something beautiful out of your mess. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what has happened to you, what you have done to someone else. God says, I forgive you. I forgive you. You've wronged me horribly. You deserve hell. But I've made it right. Just look at my son. He paid for you. 2,000 years ago on that cross, 
where he bled, arms stretched wide. God said, I forgive you and I love you. Rest in me. He breathed life into us. We are made in his image. That's why there's no room for oppression and treating other races differently because of their race, that we are all equal, with equal honor and dignity because we're made in the image of God. And what a beautiful picture we have when Adam, he spoke and walked with God. They belonged to one another. It was beautiful. Like when you see, you ever see just an older couple in a park and just holding hands and you look at that and think that's so beautiful? Maybe no. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I don't, I don't think that either if you don't think that. <laughs> but it's beautiful, right? It's like this. It's good. It's good. And you know they've been through life. And they walked hand in hand. It was beautiful and they belonged to each other. And God placed Adam in the garden to take care of it, to watch it. He was free to eat anything he wanted except of the tree of knowledge and good of evil, which we'll get to next week in chapter 3. You have this man, Adam. In verse 18, it says it's not good for him to be alone. So God said, I will make a helper who is just right for him. Verse 21, so the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man was sleeping, the Lord God took out of one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they both felt no shame. You have this beautiful garden. Earth is perfect. You have man, woman walking together. There's no shame. It's pure. It's beautiful. The woman is perfect. The man is perfect. There's no disease. It's good. It is very, very good. And the two are united as one. And this is where Christians get the teaching of marriage. It's this promise before God and before others, before the church. It's a union between a man and a woman. Full stop. This is the union between a man and a woman. There's going to come a time where me saying that is going to land me in jail. But it's true because God said it in his word and he is our standard. The two are united as one. This is the marriage picture. Jesus confirmed it in Matthew, a book called Matthew, verse, chapter 19, chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. Jesus is saying, have you not read that he, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When you get married, you are one. You are united. The Bible says that's why you're to leave your mother and father. 
So some have said like, you know, if you spent, if you're married and you're living at your parents' house, your wife looks at you. This is a hypothetical situation that did not happen to me. But, you know, living in her parents' house, married, and, you know, doesn't the Bible say if you get married, you should leave your mother and father? Yes, it does say that. Yes, it does. But it's not, it's not so clear-cut because in biblical times, it was, it was not practiced that you leave your, your father's home. You, in fact, stay with your father's home. And people throughout the generations throughout scripture, they lived with their families even after they were married. So it's not necessarily a physical leaving, but it's a mental, emotional, and spiritual leaving. If you are married and your parents have more say in your life than your wife or husband does, that is an inappropriate relationship with your parents. That is biblical. We can talk about that. But you are united with your wife. You're united with your husband. And you now are one flesh. It's not that you ignore your parents. They have wise things to say. But they are not the final thing. And that ruins marriages. I've seen it happen. Where the moms are coming in, chiming in. The dads chiming in. And the parents are controlling. It's not good. We're getting this beautiful picture of this marriage where they would serve God. Not only did Jesus reference Genesis, a later writer of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, he made reference to Genesis 24 as a foundational, as a foundation for marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that this refers to Christ in the church. So marriage, it's a great time. What's the point of marriage? Paul is saying it's to reflect Christ's sacrificial love for the church. When we open the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, we'll call it, when Jesus comes into the picture, how did people treat him? Not well. Insulted him. Spit at him. Mocked him. These are the people that you are to love. This forgiving, this servant leadership, that marriage reflects this picture of Christ loving the church, laying his life down for her. And when you look at a marriage, the design is you are to see Christ's love for the church. That is the point. Jesus is saying, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Here's another hard teaching from this. From God's original good design. Divorce is not an option. Divorce is not an option. If Christ left the church... You have grounds to leave your wife. If Christ does not leave the church, you cannot. The only exception is sexual immorality. And that's not even, that doesn't even mean you can get out right away. You have grounds to do it at this point, but you don't have to. You can get counseling, you can reconcile, you can be prayed over, go to counseling, all these things. 
What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Divorce? You can just get divorced online for 50 bucks. It's making a travesty of this beautiful union that God has created between man and woman. It's breaking lives. You see it around you. Broken homes, broken kids, broken wives, broken lives. This is not what Christ for the church looks like. It is forgiving. It is unconditional. It is good. It is beautiful. It is glorious. If you are divorced, you are not condemned because Christ forgives you. He forgives you. And He can help walk you through that. We as a community can help you walk through that. And we say these things because God alone is the creator. And He has set the grounds for how we are to interact in our families. That He would get all the glory and that humans would flourish. When God informs your life, when God informs your love, it is very good. And we stumble and we fall every day. Marriages are hard. Life is hard. Loneliness is real. Depression is real. Suicide is real. But God is real and He is there providing hope and light for the lost and the broken and the forgotten in this church, in our city. Therefore, if you're a believer, we must go out with this word. There's no program that's going to fix the Yukon. We see transformed hearts who have acknowledged and believed the gospel and our society is transformed. This is why we share this with anyone, anywhere, everywhere, anytime. And be encouraged that God alone is with you in that. When God informs your life and your love, it is very good. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is no small thing that we can speak to you. God, would you help us? Life is so difficult. Would we find our rest in you? Would we find our hope in you? Would you be and continue to be our good Father holding us when we feel utterly alone? There is but one God. And what a magnificent thing it is that we can serve you and know you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.